Coming up today, Matt Burgess has the latest on the porn block and Amit explains why evolution is happening faster than anyone thought possible. You're listening to The Wide Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when John Foley, the co-founder of exercise company Peloton, announced he was stepping down after 10 years at the firm. The company also plans to cut 2,800 jobs as its financial struggles deepen, with Amazon, Nike and Apple all reportedly interested in a cut price deal. This was also the week when an amateur rapper and Forbes contributor called Heather Morgan, who wrote a piece about how Bitcoin would be riddled with scams, has been arrested alongside her husband for allegedly attempting to launder almost 120,000 Bitcoin, which is worth $3.6 billion in what the US Department of Justice has described as its largest financial seize ever. It was also the week when Apple said it would introduce changes to make it harder to use its air tags to track someone. Apple released the devices last year to help people find lost items, but they have since been used to stalk women and by criminal gangs. And finally, it was the week when scientists at the Joint European Tourist Nuclear Fusion Project set a new record for the amount of energy extracted during a reaction. They produced 59 megajoules over five seconds. And although that's only enough to boil about 60 kettles of water, they say it's a major breakthrough in the development of a potentially limitless clean energy source. I'm going to put you on the spot, Amit. Will we crack this problem in our lifetime or will we, for decades more, just be boiling a few kettles with fusion? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So they've been saying it's the energy source of the future for, you know, they've been saying it's 10 years away for 40 years, basically. So in our lifetime, it's probably about the right time scale, I would say, because even if even if they crack it, there's still a lot to do. They've got to scale it up. They've got to figure out how to commercialise it. They've got to figure out how to build it. They've got to figure out how to build the materials that they need to, you know, house these incredibly hot reactions and all this kind of stuff. And we're probably still maybe 20 or 30 years away. If you think about how long it takes to build a normal nuclear power plant, which we've done for, for decades, it still takes 10 or 20 years from kind of commissioning to actually generating power. So... Maybe by the 2040s or 2050s. Um, I think one thing that people think of fusion as kind of this silver bullet that's going to solve the climate crisis. But actually, you know, even even if we crack it tomorrow, it's still going to be 20 years before these plants actually come online. And to be clear, we're not going to crack it tomorrow. We're going to crack it maybe in decades. And then, as you say, decades beyond that, we might be at a point where this is actually usable at scale. Lots of caveats. Yeah, the hope is that I think what this this experiment proves or what this news proves is that the science is correct, I guess, and that it kind of validates their approach to go for this this donut-shaped reactor that's called a tokamak. Um, but what they have now is the engineering challenge. But I guess their feeling is that the engineering challenge is, you know, surmountable. You can solve these problems given enough time and resource. And actually, maybe maybe this will help by actually getting more resource into the field as well because it's kind of stalled over the last maybe 20 years or so when there was a lot of interest in the 80s and 90s. Yep. Absolutely fascinating. But we're not going to talk any more about that this week. We're going to talk about porn and evolution. But first, Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? So back in 1997, IBM's uh, Deep Blue Machine uh, defeated world chess champion Gary Kasparov. And that actually happened uh, this week uh, in 1997, um, which is why I sort of came across this. So um, it is 
obviously a pretty well-known fact, but it obviously wasn't a fluke or failing. So I learned that actually no human has beaten a computer in a chess tournament since then. So computers are just really, really good at a game that requires you to compute all the possible outcomes of a certain move. Exactly, yes. Good stuff. Amit, what did you learn this week? So... You probably know that humans have been getting taller over the last, I guess, 100 or 200 years as nutrition has improved. But what I didn't know, so what I learned this week is that we're still not as tall as our ancient ancestors were. Uh, fossil records indicate that Paleolithic humans were taller on average than the average human today. So the average man back then was, we're talking about, you know, 8,000 years ago, was about 5 foot 10 compared to about 5 foot 7 and a half today. Uh, and it's thought that the advent of agriculture actually made us shorter initially. Why would that be? So we went from having like a varied diet to having one that was quite restrictive. Uh, Living in societies uh, closer together meant that diseases were more likely to transmit and things like that. So although agriculture in the long run was a good move in the short term, it did have these kind of short term health uh, drawbacks. Because we had to adjust so quickly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, things like disease became a problem when they simply weren't before because we weren't living together in large numbers. So this week, there were renewed efforts to introduce age checks to all pornographic websites accessible in the UK. But this move is being replicated elsewhere. Matt, tell us more. Yeah, so here we are again. We have talked about the UK's efforts to uh, try and block pornography or introduce age checks for pornography on the podcast for multiple years. Um, I think these plans were first talked about sort of in 2015, 2016, 2017, and then uh, they were meant to be brought into law. And in 2019, the UK scrapped these plans altogether, saying that they were sort of unworkable in their current format and there needed to be changes made. Um, Whereas now this week, we've had uh, the reintroduction of this idea of introducing age checks on pornographic websites to make sure that people who are going on them are over 18 and not children um, and the way that the form that these new uh, these new plans for the laws are coming in place is part of wider online safety laws that are being planned in the UK and they're going through parliament and having lots of different various discussions happening around them and what this means in practice if we ever get to that stage of this being implemented is that pornographic websites will have to put in place age checks to Um, essentially double check if children are uh, accessing their content and the adults that are accessing it are over 18. Okay, so the big difference is we've got many different countries, right, not just the UK trying to do something at the same time. But how is this time going to be different from other times before? Yeah, so there's quite a few different efforts around the world that are looking to introduce age verification measures onto uh, pornographic websites. And they're doing it in a few different ways. So the new uh, potential law that I'm talking about in the UK is one that is going to be aimed at all websites uh, showing uh, pornographic content. Um, Whereas that's a very big sweeping effort to basically put into place a very uh, straight line across all of the companies that do this. uh, and, And other countries that are trying to implement age checks are doing it slightly differently. So in France and Germany, both of those countries are actually playing a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. So they have, uh, in the last couple of years, issued a bunch of legal court orders to pornographic websites, some of the biggest pornographic companies in the world, asking them to put age verification in place. So 
you've got essentially two different approaches uh, to try and make this law. And whether either of them succeed will be something that we have to see, uh, wait and see. But at the moment for the UK plan, um, it's very similar to what we saw before. So there's the suggestion that all websites accessible in the UK that show pornography, uh, particularly those that are dedicated ones, maybe also other websites which have a certain percentage of their uh, content as pornography, uh, are going to have to put these checks into place. But really with the UK plan, the big difference this time is that it's going to be including social media websites. So companies that, uh, social companies that allow pornography on their platforms are going to have to put in place these age checks. I suppose the tricky thing there is that you can access that kind of content without logging in, right? So uh, I suppose for, for, for users, what will this mean? What will this 2.0 version of the porn block, the porn block sorry, look like? What, what will be their experience when they try to get onto a website that has porn on it? So in some ways, it'll probably be similar to what was suggested before. Um, but some of these efforts have developed a bit in the last couple of years. So uh, in in its simplest terms, websites will have to verify whether their users are over 18 or not. Um, but doing this uh, essentially means adding various steps to the process. Um, so at the moment, if you went onto a pornographic website, you would probably be faced with a pop-up that shows uh, that asks, are you 18 or not? If you click yes, then you uh, then you go on to access pornographic content. If you click no, you're normally directed somewhere else. There's no actual checking that takes place. But when you've got uh, a layer or a law that says that you have to do this checking, you essentially have to make sure uh, that the the identity of that person is over 18. And uh, there's a bunch of companies that exist to do this. Uh, and they've sort of sprung up in the last few years, really, since these types of uh, plans have been talked about. And they also exist for verifying age, uh, people's ages on gambling websites, uh, vaping websites, or if you're buying potentially knives or alcohol online, then you might also have various age checks. And the way that uh, this is done quite often is by essentially providing some extra information to these third parties that then uh, tell porn websites whether they whether you're old enough to access their content or not and the information that you provide essentially uh, depends a little bit on the type of age verification company that's doing these checks so they might be a company might be checking whether you are over 18 by looking at your passport or driving license or official government id or credit card details and then they're then able to take these uh, bits of information away and check them against an official database so uh, they might be able to see uh, your passport details they would check that they match up on an official record and then they would say actually yes this shows this person is over 18 and then you get access and they implement these uh, sort of as a middle layer in between the por porno pornography websites and the user so you're essentially sort of going through an extra step to get on to the websites through this process. That makes sense for like official pornography websites uh, because it's sort of a transactional thing, right? You're paying for content, you have that sort of verification, it's one extra step and there you go. But on social media sites, I mean, despite crackdowns that we've seen on content and trying to protect minors, you know, pornography and, you know, adult only material is quite rife on there. So what are social media companies saying about all of this because they've suddenly fallen under the purview of these of these government kind of potential regulations what have they said they can do or not do and what happens if they don't do anything <laughs> 
So most social media companies um, say that they don't allow pornographic material anyway, the major ones, this is at the very least. Uh, so for instance, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they all say it's not allowed. And if they find it, uh, they will remove it, which essentially leaves two uh, social media or two mainstream social media websites that uh, allow pornography, which is Twitter and Reddit. Um, and across both of these platforms, uh, sex workers and people within the adult industry often use their accounts to promote their content on paid-for sites, for instance, uh, OnlyFans or other places that allow you to subscribe to, subscribe to people. Um, and obviously, people just share stuff without uh, promoting uh, themselves or subscriptions and stuff as well. Um, and both of these companies, uh, I asked them this week what their uh, plans are around uh, age verification if this UK court law comes to pass. Uh, it should be noted that there's a lot of uh, still uncertainty around the specifics of the UK law, but the big change, as we've sort of said, is that social media companies will be in place. And neither Twitter or Reddit uh, replied with a comment. They both refused to comment on this at this stage. Um, I think that this is obviously um, something that is going to change. They definitely will have views on this. And if they uh, have to identify uh, ad well, pornographic content on their website, not nudity, stuff that is uh, very overt and pornographic in its nature, which is something that can also be quite hard to define, um, then that's going to cause a lot of problems because you might have to have these social media platforms essentially scanning for all of this uh, pornographic content and then trying to work out if the person that's accessing it is based in the UK. And then as a next step, if they can work out these two things, then they'll have to try and work out if that person is over 18. And that puts it in a puts them in sort of a very difficult uh, position with the amount of steps and process and some things that they're going to have to take to do this. Um, and essentially, you're getting to a stage where you're looking at either social media companies will more widely have to put into place age checks and verification in, in case somebody then decides to start looking at uh, pornographic content. Or as we've seen with sort of Tumblr in the past, for instance, that platform has blocked uh, pornographic content in total, uh, which obviously has uh, ramifications on people's uh, ability to have freedom of, freedom of expression and uh, sort of, yeah, express themselves online. And if you're going towards a case where you're having companies to have got the choice of putting in loads of measures or essentially blocking it, they may go down that route of actually blocking it altogether. Yeah, that, that becomes really problematic, right? Because you're asking sites to basically decide what is porn, right? Do I consider this porn? Do I consider that porn? Is is this enough to be qualified as porn? And those are decisions that obviously have angered um, artists in the past. Um, they feel like they're censured and it's, it's totally right for them to feel that way if, if the algorithms aren't making the right decisions. But the other option is just by kind of limiting the amount of content that underage children could see right i mean in your piece you mentioned google which has limited search results for people whom its algorithm determines is under 18 tiktok has similar limitations for people under 18 obviously they're not perfect but at least they can have a different version of the site so if you click i'm under 18 you can see something different right but but has anyone actually proven that age verification can be effective on porn websites before I think one of the big challenges with this is that definition of effective. Um, so a, a lot of people that I've spoken to in this space say that if you're looking to define what effective is uh, and sort of the impact that these measures will have, 
they are obviously going to stop some children from accessing adult content that they shouldn't be accessing. There's been research research to show that around sort of 50 or 60 percent of 11 to 13 year olds have seen adult content online when they shouldn't have done so. Some of them have stumbled upon this uh, by accident. Some of them have gone out intentionally to, intentionally to find this um, and if you're putting these uh, blocks in place, then that will have a bit of an impact. Obviously, there are things such as VPNs, which people can use to get around these. Um, and there's plenty of stories of uh, children within school systems, for instance, getting around uh, sort of network filters and blocks that are put in place on their on their own systems just to access things that aren't pornographic, but things that they're not supposed to access. And there's all of these different potential ways of uh, getting around these types of systems. Um, and so that's one question around whether they will be effective or not. Um, but from sort of the child safety and regulator perspective, doing something in this space means that uh, less children will be accessing um, uh, adult content. Um, so there is that little bit of this is going to make a difference no matter what. But in terms of like how much of a difference that will make is something that we uh, don't necessarily know at this stage. There are a couple of websites uh, or a few websites in the adult space that have already put in place age verification med- measures. So in Germany, uh, one of the international companies, a company called Fancentro, uh, introduced age verification last year. And they said that it um that it's gone down well essentially with their users and the people that upload content there they said it has had a financial impact on their business because uh, they have to pay a company to do verifications uh, each time that a verification happens and that's like a big concern of the adult industry particularly if you are targeting a small amount of websites uh, the cost that this will have um, but also generally it's worth saying that the adult industry people that I've spoke to and the owners of these websites say that they're in favour of age verification. They don't want children accessing um, uh, content that is main, meant for adults. Um, and they their problems with this and why this maybe hasn't come to case so far is the more you get into the technical details of it, the harder it is to implement. And actually there are just wider ramifications around um, what this does to the internet in general. If you're having one country with laws uh, and another country with not, you're leading to more of a internet that is sort of like split and balkanized into various parts. And essentially there are just big ramifications that include competition and things like that as well. So there are a lot of underlying parts that are technical and complex and difficult about these plans which is why we've seen them fail in the past and they are all sort of bubbling back to the surface but there is an appetite for people for companies for regulators to put age verification measures in place yeah so i think that's a really interesting point because basically what you're saying is that there's going to be two types of internet right if you happen to be living in a place where there's a porn block, you will be seeing um, all these different pop-ups asking for your information. If you happen to be somewhere else where that porn block is not in place, you can access that content without having to to give any of your details, right? So we're, we're in a situation where if you think about pornography, a lot of people would like to consume that material, but don't particularly want their identity to be tied to it, nor for third parties to know what kind of content they like to view. So what is the situation in this iteration of the porn block? Because from what you're saying, it sounds like we're going to have another layer of identification, which may expose people to, you know, having their data picked up by third parties that aren't even the porn site. 
Yeah, and this is one of the, the sort of issues that has been uh, prevalent throughout the entire uh, of these types of discussions, particularly in the UK, around having a born block. If you're creating essentially uh, ways where people have to verify their identity, somebody will have this, this data, whether they use it or not for anything is, is something that's very much out there. The online ver age verification companies would say that they, they don't create databases and they have, uh, they put security practices and standards in place to protect people's information where they do hold it. Um, but I think that there are just so many, there are so many ways that people attract through their browsers and through cookies and various types of uh, sort of like device fingerprinting and stuff like that, that actually um, there's always going to be a limit. There's always going to be risks about how people are tracked online. And, and obviously uh, the types of pornography that people watch are very sensitive, uh, personal things that are tied to individuals. So there is that risk that is always going to exist. But I think that we have seen in the last few years, and particularly coming from the UK, more uh, measures and initiatives to try and increase safety online for children. Um, and there has been, uh, the big tech companies are putting measures in place and making changes when when they have to. Um, so it is, we are going to see some change in this, but the the devil is in the detail, really, in terms of what this looks like. The fundamental question here is how do we or can we keep children safe online? There's been a couple of stories recently about the metaverse or sort of a version of what the metaverse might end up being. Um, children aren't allowed in, in the metaverse and yet they are flooding onto metaverse platforms in their droves and potentially being exposed to behavior that they're not meant to be exposed to and there's no way of moderating that space to keep them safe facebook or meta introduced a buffer zone around all people who go into its version of the metaverse so that no one come can come within a few meters of them in this virtual space as this weird tension between the way that we conduct ourselves as a society offline let's say i'm an 11 year old child if i walk into a shop that sells pornography someone should stop me i shouldn't be sold or allowed to view the material that is for sale in that shop but online i can go on twitter which is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and i can very very easily view pornography i can go onto reddit and go to reddit.com slash porn and watch pornography no questions asked and again, no one's going to stop me. So it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because all the reasons that um, privacy campaigners and technologists, real experts in, in, in this field, all the reasons that they put up for why this is a bad idea make total sense. But when I play that argument that I just played through my head, I struggle to come up with an answer as to why the rules of the offline world shouldn't apply in a similar way online. Matt, you've spent years reporting this and it's, it's those two sides can't be brought together, can they? That's the problem we keep coming back to. Yeah, it is. And there are, I think it's going to come to a stage of being compromises and best practices that are needed, essentially. Um, people within the privacy space that I speak to and, and people that, as I say, particularly in the adult industries, say that they want to put these types of measures in place or not necessarily want, but if they have to, they will do so and they don't want to. They don't want children accessing uh, adult material. But essentially, the practice of how you do that 
online, particularly in an internet that was originally founded with uh, very sort of uh, freedom of expression, uh, no censorship uh, sort of principles created. That's the foundations of the internet. Uh, when you start to impose these types of measures, there are going to be very difficult questions about the poor proportionality of measures that you do put in place and whether they are reasonable and their wider impacts on society. So some of these things link back to debates that we have around end-to-end encryption, uh, which we've obviously talked about a lot as well. Um, but essentially, it seems and feels like that big tech in particular, and you can probably you can probably include uh, some of the porn companies in uh, that sort of broader category as well, because they are huge businesses with hundreds of millions of viewers. Some of the, the big porn websites have as many people visiting them each day and each month as sort of Amazon gets and Netflix gets. So they are comparable in size of at least viewership and impact and stuff like that as well. But this industry overall and big tech has been very bad at protecting uh people online whether that's been whether that's children whether that's women whether that's uh various other groups of people or, or anything like that overall the last 10 15 years companies have been bad at uh, uh at safety measures and now the law is starting to catch up with them i'd like to put forward then a, a provocation and this is one that people can email in about podcast at wired.co.uk i put it that we try very hard to build a world in which it is safe to be a child. But when it comes to building a world online, companies that are worth huge amounts of money show little interest or little ability to come up with technical solutions to properly tackle this problem. And until those two things are resolved, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine a version of the internet that is quote-unquote safe for children, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, it, it's, it's a really long-running debate, um, and it's one that kind of hasn't moved on a great deal in a number of years. But let us know your thoughts on this latest chapter, podcast at wired.co.uk, with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. Or if you've been trawling back through the archive, you can always get in touch with us about topics that we talked about on the show recently as well. Now, way back in 1859, Charles Darwin laid down the law on evolution. He revealed that A, it happens, and B, that it is a slow process, the process of natural selection. It's why, for example, different varieties of finches have different sized and shaped beaks, depending on where they live and what they like to eat. But Amit, it turns out that Darwin might have been just a little, a little bit wrong about one aspect of evolution, the time scale. That's right, yeah. So Darwin uh, in The Origin of Species talks about the kind of slow march of ages that uh, natural selection has its effect over. But by the 1970s, scientists were finding evidence that evolution might be sli happening slightly quicker than he had envisaged. So peppered moths living in industrial areas of Britain were getting darker, better for kind of blending in against the soot-blackened buildings and avoiding being eaten from, from the air. Um, house sparrows that were introduced to North America from Europe were changing size and colour depending on the climate of their new home. So, you know, in the desert regions of America, they were getting lighter. In the Pacific Northwest, they were getting darker. Uh, a type of grass that was growing around electricity pylons was developing a tolerance for zinc that was used to coat the pylons, um, and it was just normally toxic to plants. Um, so these are all examples of phenotypic change. Um, so phenotype refers to the trait that actually exists in the animal that's something like, you know, eye colour or height or weight or size. Um, 
that's not it's not always necessarily reflected by a change in the underlying genetic code, but sometimes it is. So when we, when we're talking about evolution in this particular story, we we really referring to phenotypic change. So that's just an important thing to bear in mind. Um, so yeah, from the seventies onwards, they were finding these things, and by the late nineteen nineties, a biologist called Andrew Hendry from Canada um, had noticed similarly quick changes in phenotype while studying salmon, um, and he kind of realised that actually maybe this rapid evolution thing is actually not rare and maybe it's just happening all the time and and that Darwin was maybe slightly wrong about the time scale that evolution occurs at. So to try and understand this, they created a database, right? Science wants data and these scientists collected a lot of data. So thousands of different measurements of different animals, everything from the cranial depth of the common chaffinch to the lifespan of the Trinidadian guppy. And what they wanted to answer wasn't so much how quickly evolution occurred, but really how much of this rapid change was down to human activity? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, as, as is probably obvious, humans are making the world change faster than it ever has, and, and they're forcing animals to change faster than they would have otherwise. So, you know, they wanted to answer this question of whether we are not, and our actions are speeding up or changing the process of evolution. And there's a bunch of examples of this. You can think of animals adapting to live in urban environments, you know, peregrine falcons nesting on the reefs of skyscrapers or you know, how we change habitats by cutting down trees or releasing toxic waste into rivers or, you know, by introducing species to areas where they don't have any predators and, you know, then they run right. You can look at rabbits in Australia as a classic example of this. Um, and then, you know, on top of all that, now we're kind of having an impact on the entire global temperature of the planet as well, which is bound to have a knock-on effect on evolution too. So all of those examples are pretty overt. They are things that maybe even a lay person can observe just by looking around them but what the database revealed is something that is kind of unexpected that a whole bunch of animals it turns out are evolving to get smaller across the board so why is that and what do humans have to do with it yeah so this is one of the really interesting findings of of, uh, andrew henry's initial database and and the researchers actually have just updated their database and published a new paper and they've added like several thousand more data points to it and and that work has confirmed that this is definitely happening that animals are definitely getting smaller and the reason that's so surprising is it goes against this established theory in biology called cope's rule and cope's rule posits that the species should increase in size over time because it's better to be bigger basically you know the bigger you are as a creature the more likely you are to survive to pass on your genes to win, you know, fights and to to fend off predators and things like that. So the reason that species are getting smaller on average is that there's two kind of theories for it. So one is that hunting and harvesting are the biggest drivers of this trend. Um, So that's what the data shows. So if you're more likely to get, if you're a fish and you're bigger, you're more likely to get caught and, you know, eaten and less likely to survive. So only the smaller ones will survive to pass on their genes. And that's a real pressure on, on making being smaller better. Um, but it's also thought that climate change might be playing a role here as well because of another basic rule of biology. So the larger you are, the, you have a better ability to retain heat. Uh, so therefore, if you are smaller, it's, it's kind of easier for you to, to, to survive in a, a hotter environment, essentially. Uh, if you're too big in a hot environment, it's really hard for you to shed that, that warmth and you end up being too hot. So this theory is that like in a warming planet, it pays to be smaller and though the effect is tiny, you know, across the whole world and the thousands of examples in the database, thought that they thought that climate change might have an impact as well. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to play dumb. So we fish all the big fish, the smaller fish survive. Who cares? What's the huge devastating impact that we're missing by human activity potentially fiddling with the size of fish? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the big fish probably won't be thrilled, <laughs> thrilled by your uh, your assertion there. But yeah, so the the issue is, and I kind of ask this question to the researchers as well, that there are serious knock on effects um, for humans, uh, you know, ourselves, and from a selfish perspective, but also for the ecosystem. So, if you take salmon as an example, uh, smaller fish mean that there's less money for the communities that rely on catching them. It means less food for the predators that eat them. So, in, you know, in Canada, there aren't be wolves or bears. It means that they produce proportionally fewer eggs. So that means that when they spawn and add nutrients to rivers there's less nutrients added to the rivers so there's less for kind of the plant and animal life that like relies on the salmon being there in large numbers to, to thrive on um and you can see this as well in um in mozambique so one of the most cited examples of rapid evolution recently is these elephants in, in gorongosa national park that have been evolving without tusks because of poaching so obviously elephant ivory was you know is really coveted by poachers and and during the civil war in mozambique poaching really shot up um and essentially just turned survival of the fittest on its head normally tusks are a good adaptation for elephants but in this kind of like extremely poach poacher heavy environment they became a, a liability um, and now the number of proportion of female elephants being born without tusks has shot up by more than 50 percent in, in gorongosa in mozambique um and that has had an impact not only on the the, the elephants themselves but also in the ecosystems which is really interesting so elephants with tusk tusks use their tusks to dig up the soil and like dig for food and they they change the ecosystem by by doing that and tusks elephants don't do that in the same way they eat different food they you know create different effects in the ecosystem which is really really interesting and it's interesting that you bring up the phrase survival of the fittest because what we're kind of doing here is turning it into survival of the weakest or survival of the weirdest or survival of the thing that has the trait that humans don't want it to have, um, which is just messing with evolution in all kinds of ways. But let's let's go back to the database because that's the thing that's allowing scientists to see all of these hidden changes. As you say, elephants without tusks is quite an obvious one um, and to get to grips with their consequences. So beyond simply measuring stuff, how do you specifically measure evolution is there a scale or a number how do we go about quantifying this in a way that's useful and also universal yeah so i find this really interesting so you're right it's not immediately obvious how you can compare like you know the change in the length of a fox's tail to the number of eggs laid by the average pacific salmon in any meaningful way and use that to draw conclusions because they're completely different things and hard to kind of compare on a scale you can't say that one is changing faster than the other um, but evolutionary biologists have got two metrics that they use for this. So these are two units called Darwin's after Charles Darwin, obviously, and Haldane's after the British scientist J.B.S. Haldane. Um, and they're basically a statistical way of like converting the change in a particular trait into a rate or proportion of change over time. So rather than saying that a cat's whiskers are three centimetres shorter than they were on average 50 years ago, you'd say that they decreased by a certain proportion over a certain number of years or generations or that they changed by you know X number of Darwin's or Haldane's. So you'd be able to see the evolutionary shift and say, okay, that species has changed by X Darwins and this species has changed by Y Darwins. Yeah, and exactly. And you'd be able to say, like, okay, if you look at a, a population that you think has been affected by human activity, you can say, okay, well, this species has changed by more Haldanes than this other species that we think was not affected by human activity. Okay, so they've crunched all these numbers and they've come up with a very clever, clever way of making the change in one species or one ecosystem relatable to the changes in another species or ecosystem. So let's get down to the specifics. What did the researchers learn about how human activity is affecting evolution in weird and unexpected ways? 
So uh, the headline, which you, you probably can, can predict, was that rates of phenotypic change, so trait changes in animals, were higher in populations that were affected by human inactivity than those that were not. So we are speeding up the rate of change in these populations that we're having an impact on. Um, so that was the kind of headline. But um, what they were surprised to find, that, that they couldn't really confirm that climate change was, was driving this. So pollution seemed to be a much bigger driver. So there were changes to trees in, in Russia that were in smelting areas, to, to, lakes in Swe- to fish in lakes in Sweden that were um, kind of had toxic waste released into them. And, and it seemed like pollution was driving these things much more strongly than climate change. Um, but that's possibly because it's really hard to like, isolate the effects of climate change because it's happening everywhere. Um, and also because it doesn't happen evenly as well. So you might speed up evolution in some places, some species might just go extinct. So uh, in the Arctic, and, and it's hard to measure things like behaviours as well. So in the Arctic, polar bears might develop new hunting behaviours that don't rely on ice. So we're changing their species, but they might find that they're in a niche that's actually better. So they might, you know, not change in the way you expect. Um, in the oceans, it might mean that a new strain of coral that's, you know, adapted to living in stressful environments becomes the dominant species. And we might see that, the coral populations rebound if that happens. And so that's obviously in the change of evolution, but maybe not in the direction you'd expect. So with climate change, it's really hard to predict like what direction it's going to go in and therefore it's hard to isolate that effect across lots of species. Sort of loathe to say it, but is this good news because animals are able to quickly adapt and evolve to cope with the impacts of human behavior. I mean, it, it sounds slightly counterintuitive. It's like, hey, we're ruining the planet, but um, it's okay because the planet can cope even though it definitely can't. Or is it bad news because we're messing with the whole planet and it really can't cope? I guess another way of thinking about this is somebody changing their behavior because of an abusive relationship, right? These animals don't want to change, but like it or not, we're going to make them. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question. So when I first started reporting this story, I thought, you know, I definitely thought of it as just another example of, you know, humans wrecking the world, we're messing with nature. And, and that was, you know, obviously a bad thing. You know, it's not good when species go extinct, right? I think that's, you can take that as a given. Um, but I spoke to a really interesting ecologist, a guy called Tom Cameron at the University of Essex. He kind of described himself as a utilitarian ecologist. And he impressed on me this idea that change is part of nature. Species have always changed and the fact that they're changing in response to human inputs is a sign that, you know, life on Earth as a whole is not under threat, no matter how much sort of poison we pump into the atmosphere. And if we kind of overfish to the point where species start to shrink, well, then that's just a sign that we're not immune to these like feedback loops that govern every other living thing. We are part of nature. And, you know, if we mess it up, then it's going to come back to haunt us. Yeah, I guess it's sort of a question of the world that we want, right? So, um, yes, nature, um, the natural world might survive, but do we want to live in a world with minute salmon, emaciated bears um, and animals sort of limping around the place looking really, really pissed off with us? Yeah, but like, I guess the, the point is that, and the point that he made is that the size of salmon is sort of relative to your perspective on, <laughs> to our current, you know, we kind of think of the natural world as being sort of frozen in time that the way things are or the way things were 20 years ago is the way they should, should have always been and should be forever but the world around us is just a snapshot and there are costs and benefits to trying to maintain the status quo so Cameron used the example of the lapwing which is a species that thrives on farmland um, so if we rewild those areas and return them to kind of nature lapwing populations will drop so you know whether that's good or bad sort of depends on your perspective which I think is a really interesting way of framing it. Yeah, and, and probably a way that a lot of people haven't thought about it because it makes you. It, it's not saying that climate change is a good thing. It's saying that the natural world isn't fixed and that 
Change is inevitable, which sounds super corny. And that brings us back to Darwin. So as well as this idea of natural selection, he also coined the phrase survival of the fittest, which we talked about earlier. And in a cruel and kind of grim way, that's what this is all about, right? We're forcing the natural world to evolve in weird and wonderful ways that it wouldn't be doing if we weren't messing with the entire planet. So some animals and plants will be able to keep up and others will likely vanish forever and many already have without us even knowing. Which is both terrifying and in a way, I guess, kind of heartening. That's what you're saying? Yeah, so there's this idea of the Anthropocene, right? That we're in a new era of sort of you know, new geological era or you know, terrestrial era defined by human activity. Um, and I, I guess the point that... that uh, some people I spoke, to, I spoke to you made was that you know we're the ones that have the most to lose out from a rapid change in nature like nature as a whole will continue and it might look different and some species will go extinct some species will adapt but like um it's kind of up to us how much change we can accept and how much change we can live with um, because the world that human pressures create might look very different from the one that like we've adapted to live in ourselves and like humans are very a very adaptable species obviously but if we change the world too much then it's gonna have as much of an impact on us as it has on nature. And I think that's really, really interesting. Um, but I think what this this work confirms is that populations have always changed in response to their environment, you know, whether that's natural changes over time or human changes over a shorter period of time. And this idea that, you know, we kind of expect to see a particular type of nature when we open our curtains is is not really right. And nature is always kind of about change, as you said. But yeah, it's a really interesting challenge, I think, to to balance these two things. Yeah, and it comes back to that question of what world do we want? I think the the huge task that we all face in the climate crisis is a realisation that the world is going to change and that many of the ways that it will change will be bad and there's not an awful lot that we can do to stop it. Like a lot of that change is that, that warming is locked in um, and it's now a case of how quickly can we put the brakes on, how can we recognise where the change that we're making um, is going to have really, really fundamental impacts. I just wanted to come back to one point you made earlier on, and it's like the unintended consequences of change. So the example you gave of the elephant of elephants without tusks, they eat different food, they have a different impact on the environment around them, and it, it's kind of, I guess, impossible to understand, as you were saying, sort of the true impacts of cl- of, cl- of climate change how you go from a tuskless elephant to, let's say, a beetle going extinct just because the elephant's eating all of its food or whatever, right? Yeah, and I think, but I think also you have to bear in mind that, that that will open up new niches as well, right? So it might mean that the elephants eat less of a particular plant and then there's more of that plant available for another species that will benefit. And it's all this kind of like these trade-offs and... and uh, it's only because of it's only because of our perspective that one species has more value than another i guess i think i mean i think generally biodiversity is good it means that there's kind of a wide range of niches and that the the environment that animals have kind of evolved to fill all those different niches so by by changing the niches we are disrupting the process and i guess as long as we're not and i think maybe 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 one counterpoint to what i've been saying about how change is good is this idea of like monocultures right you know you get sugarcane plantations where there's just one species for the whole of an island or you know just kind of takes over and that's where you kind of have a massive loss of biodiversity which i think is more of a problem than this sort of adaptation across lots of different species if we can try and maintain biodiversity and accept that some species will evolve into new niches as the planet heats up then you know it's 
I guess, a less gloomy way of looking at it. But I think, you know, the ideal would be that, you know, we don't drive half of life on Earth into, into extinction, I say, I would say would be the, the overall theme, I think. Yes, uh, a necessary reality check that good news, but tempered with some fairly fundamentally gloomy news. It's a really fascinating example of science going out there and challenging our perceptions and getting us to think differently about really big problems. The full story will include a link to in the show notes. And if you've got any thoughts on uh, what Emma and I have been talking about, it's podcast at wire.co.uk. And we'll include a link to Matt's story in the show notes as well. Maybe because he's still got to finish writing it. So maybe not. Uh, podcast at wire.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show. We'll be back again same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.